Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Powell placates the Fed chair to tell Congress that rising prices won't last. Crypto kicked, China sparks a sell-off with fresh trading curbs, and jaws drop. Netflix teams up with legendary director Steven Spielberg. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move, where we're hoping to enjoy some of the traditional warm weather pleasures this summer, like pools, picnics, parks, and perhaps even Powell. Yes, Fedchet J. Powell testifying before Congress later on Tuesday. His first public comments since the teeny taper tantrum on Friday, spurred by fears that the Federal Reserve is pulling forward discussions on reducing support and future rate rises too. So Powell has a rendezvous with Congress. Spielberg is hooking up with Netflix. And First Move has a date with Tinder. Yes, the CEO of Dating App. The dating app joins us later to discuss post-lockdown relationships and a new feature, Tinder Video. Meanwhile, investors can't decide whether to swipe right or left either pre-market. A bit of consolidation, I think, after the snapback rally yesterday. The Dow rising for the first time in a week as bond yields calm too. Europe remains near records with UK factory orders at 33-year highs. The Nikkei, meanwhile, rallying in Asia, winning back all of Monday's losses. Now, Fed Chair Powell's testimony certainly comes at a tipping point for taper timing chatter. New York Fed President John Williams said Monday he believes a Fed taper decision is, quote, a long way away. Meanwhile, the Dallas Fed President Robert Kaplan says it's about time to pull the trigger. I actually think this is a healthy debate. It signals that the core crisis is passed and discussion before seeing any action is a luxury. Let's get more on all of this in our drivers. Christine Romans joins me now. Christine, great to have you with us. A bit of two-way debate here from the Federal Reserve I think is a good thing. And I mean that because everyone seemed to be in line when the crisis was near and we needed to see immediate support and in huge size. Now a bit of two-way risk is a good thing for investors. But Congress, I think, is going to have some firm and pointed questions to ask about rising prices and the struggle, particularly for small businesses, in terms of hiring. Yeah, certainly we're in a new phase, right, of the coronavirus crisis. And we're moving into a phase where we can see it behind us, but we don't really know what the blueprint is for going forward here. Inflation and the labor market, two very important keys we'll hear from him today. On inflation, in his prepared testimony, Julia, he will use that word transitory uh, again. He will point out that inflation has grown uh, recently, but that from very, very low levels. And again, he makes this this point. He uses the, the verb abate, that eventually this will work itself out. Whether the market agrees with him or not, this is still the line we're hearing from the Fed. He's also talking about the unemployment rate, how it's still elevated. And again, hoping that that will work its way out too. He expects job gains should be coming in better uh, in coming months, and he pegs that to vaccinations. But he does go on to point out, and I'm sure you noticed this too, that the pace of vaccination has slowed and the variants still propose a risk. So even as I say we're entering sort of this new phase right now, it is a new phase with some of the very scary elements of the old one. Yeah, but there are encouraging signs, and we call them encouraging signs from the labor market. Others are saying, look, we can't get help. But what it's creating is upward pressure on wages to the extent that actually some of the lower paid 
workers are seeing their wages rising faster for the first time in a really long time than those with higher qualifications, or at least that's some of the evidence that we're now seeing, Christine. Yeah, and you look at the Atlanta Fed, it published some really interesting numbers that show somebody with just a high school degree having the fastest wage increases uh, of all the categories, something like 3.7% a year over year. And that's because you've seen it, these these uh, jobs in transportation, in warehousing, in retail, in hospitality. Uh, they've had to put in hiring bonuses and raise wages to attract and retain workers. Because, Julia, I do think we are in this new phase. The leverage right now in the American economy is advantage worker, right? I mean, there's no question. I don't know how long that's going to last. Again, there's no blueprint for this. But you have record new business creation. You have uh, the fastest pace of quitting your job in 20 years. People are finding new opportunities at higher pay in different uh, different categories. After a year of stimulus and jobless benefits, they've had a time to retool and maybe even retrain and refocus after what we've just lived through. So I see a real churn happening in the American labor market. And it will be fascinating to see how that how that plays out. Greater equity. Is that what we're seeing? Perhaps the start of it in terms of some of the inequities that we've seen and inequalities that we've seen in this labor market. You, sure, you certainly would hope so. You know, I was talking to Neela Richardson from the chief economist of ADP uh, recently, and uh, I said, you know, what do you make of this worker shortage? And she told me, I see less of a worker shortage and more of a barrier, in the, you know, an institutional barrier to entry uh, for a lot of people in the labor market, specifically low income and female, uh, uh, the female workforce. And she's hoping that a lot of the stuff that Congress has done is going to help try to smooth out some of those barriers. But it's something to really keep an eye on here. If we're going to grow the economy, we have to grow grow the labor force participation. To do that, we have to make sure that we have the right supports in place to get everybody back, you know, back in the game. Uh, we're still in the early innings of that. Yeah, we are. And the question is, when uh, the unemployment benefits roll off at their peak in September, whether this remains sticky or whether it rolls off again and we see those wages come back down, it's going to be interesting to see yeah. Christine Raymond's, particularly at the low end. Thank you for that. You're the crypto crackdown now. Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies keep falling as China ramps up the pressure on digital coins. The government instructing banks to push back against crypto after ordering a halt to operations in a major hub for crypto mining. David Culver is live in Shanghai and has been looking at all the details of this. David, great to have you with us. As far as some of the pressure on financial institutions and the curbs are concerned, I don't really see anything new. I just see a cranking up of the pressure in terms of the operations that they're allowing or not allowing anymore in, in terms of crypto, uh, cryptocurrency maneuvers. What do you make of what we're seeing? You've called it exactly yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, Julie, it's a mounting of pressure and it's coming straight from Beijing and it's on several of the platforms and lenders, including Alipay, which is widely used here, of course, owned by Alibaba and some of the five big banks, the big lenders here, all summoned by the People's Bank of China in Beijing and news of that obviously had an immediate impact. It brought down in the immediacy uh, Bitcoin 9%. And it really it took a hit on other cryptocurrencies, many of them seen uh, about half of what they were at in April when many of them were at an all-time high. So it's definitely having an impact and it's sending a message. And it's something that China is not willing to back down on. They want cryptocurrencies uh, trading in particular to be halted. They will not tolerate it, as they put it. And they want it, in their words, to be investigated and identified, looking specifically at the exchanges and those who are trading in particular. So going forward, it seems that they're trying to send this message. But as you point out, it is rooted in something that they've been consistent with over the past several months, if not years, 
looking at how they're going to handle this. Uh, it remains to be seen if it's going to uh, be tolerated in any manner whatsoever, but it's having a huge impact on the value because you're talking about what is the second largest economy uh, quickly becoming the first, sending a very loud and clear message, Julia. Yeah, it's a hit to legitimacy, but in traditional markets, if you crack down on mining, you reduce supply and therefore you force the price higher. So it's quite interesting to watch the, the right. price action and the interaction with something that is at the nascent stages of, um, of technology and acceptance, of course, too. Why, David, really quickly? Why are they doing this? We know that they're testing and, and rolling out their own central bank digital coin. Is this a case of one coin to rule them all or just something in terms of curbing speculation, which we've seen in other asset classes in the past. I think a lot of this is rooted in control. And they yeah. want to make sure, as you point out, as they're di rolling out this digital RMB, which is going to compete, by the way, with Alipay. It's going to compete with WeChat. They want to make sure that they are tracking and monitoring all movements of money. And they portray this as trying to crack down on money laundering. They say that they want to make sure that there's no illegal cross transfer over borders of assets. But ultimately, this is about Beijing controlling to make sure that they know where the assets are and that they get a piece of it ultimately uh, as they continue to even reform here within China some of the tax laws, Julia. Yes. So coin control, both things. Yeah. David, yeah. great to have you with us. David Cole there. Good to be with you. All right, let's move on. Thank you. One of cinema's all-time greats is betting big on streaming. Steven Spielberg's production company has signed a deal with Netflix. Frank Pelota is following the story for us. Frank, great to have you with us. Let's be clear, though. This is not Steven Spielberg's nor Amblin, the production studio's first foray into streaming. But as a symbol in Hollywood, this is huge. And it's also huge for Netflix, given the competition. It's a big, big deal. I mean, this is more, like you said, a symbol of the changing dynamics in Hollywood. This is one of Hollywood's titans of the old guard, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Jaws, Jurassic Park, the theatrical experience basically in a human being. Going over to Netflix, the company that is redefining entertainment. Now, mind you, does this mean that we're going to see a bunch of Steven Spielberg movies play exclusively on Netflix? No, we don't know that yet. We don't know if he's going to direct any of these. This is his production house, Amblin, who's obviously produced a bunch of huge movies over the years, like Back to the Future and Spielberg's movies himself. But for Netflix, this is huge, especially as competition is ramping up because you have Disney and our own company, Warner Media's HBO Max, bringing in all of these different types of events that want to bring in subscribers. And I can't think of a better way to bring in subscribers than Steven Spielberg. Yeah, you know, he made some comments, some controversial comments in the past, didn't he, over what gets an Emmy and what gets an Oscar. So it is quite fascinating to your point of him perhaps seeing the writing on the wall here and understanding that streaming is one way to go. And it doesn't preclude some of your content being in cinemas either and therefore qualifying in the future post-pandemic for, for Oscars. Yeah, I mean, it was in 2019, there was a lot of reporting that he was trying to bar Netflix from the Oscars. It was kind of overblown. It was more of a okay. kerfuffle, more of a misunderstanding. But he did come out and say, it doesn't matter if a movie's on big screens or small screens. He wants people to watch movies. He wants stories to be seen and heard by audiences. But let's not get it twisted here. Steven Spielberg loves the theatrical experience. He's a yeah. proponent of the 
experience but he's also at this point is netflix not the theatrical experience they have movies in theaters it's not like it was in the old days where it was netflix could only be seen at home i saw the irishman in theaters i saw marriage story in theaters these are netflix films so i think spielberg knows there's certain places where certain films can be made and netflix is a good opportunity for him to expand his storytelling yeah, Jaws on your iPad does not look anywhere near as frightening as um, Jaws in the cinema. Where are you, by the way, Frank? I was expecting Indy in the background at the very least. And Indy's right <laughs> over there. He's oh, right he? over there. I'm, okay. I moved into a new apartment, so I'm right there. Oh, did you? Okay, fine. Just checking. I missed that whip and the hat in the background. Frank, thank you very much. Frank Pelota. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Taliban militants are taking over dozens of districts in northern Afghanistan, according to several local officials who spoke to CNN. Many districts have come under Taliban control without a battle, while in other places officials say government troops are putting up resistance. The U.S. and NATO remain on track to withdraw troops by September 11th. In a few moments, Iran's president-elect will deliver a speech in the holy city of Mashhad. In a press conference Monday, the hardline politician called on the U.S. to rejoin the nuclear deal, and he laid out some of his foreign policy. Mr. Razi was declared Iran's new president on Saturday in an uncompetitive race in which only around 49 percent of voters participated. A UN committee says the Great Barrier Reef near Australia has deteriorated so much it should be listed as a World Heritage Site, quote, in danger. But Australia disagrees, saying it already invests billions to protect the vital ocean ecosystem. It's home to hundreds of marine species and contributes almost $5 billion annually to Australia's economy. CNN's Ivan Watson has more on the reef rift between Australia and the UN. The Australian government is taking a very unusual step. It is publicly accusing UNESCO of essentially betraying it after proposing to put the Great Barrier Reef on an endangered list of World Heritage Sites. Now, the Great Barrier Reef is this incredibly rich, diverse marine habitat that's just enormous, nearly 350,000 square kilometers in size. That's thousands of reefs and atolls and islands bigger than Italy and home to thousands of different marine species. But it has been dying off, or it's, it, rather its coral reefs have been dying off as the world's oceans, their temperatures rise due to climate change. There have been these terrible bleaching incidents in 2016, 2017, and 2020, which have been killing off the underwater forests of coral. And now UNESCO has been saying that the health of the reef has declined from poor to very poor. Australia's environment minister, she just seems to not like this new potential classification. And she called with Australia's foreign minister, UNESCO's director general, to try to get that individual to reverse this designation, going on to say, quote, I made it clear that we will contest this flawed approach, one that has been taken without adequate consultation. I agree that global climate change is the single biggest threat to the world's reefs, but it is wrong in our view to single out the best managed reef in the world for an endangered listing. But you know who's welcoming this proposal are environmental groups like Greenpeace, which say that 
Australia and its government haven't gone far enough to reduce carbon emissions, pointing out, for example, that Australia is one of the world's biggest exporters of coal. And those coal exports are projected to grow over the next five years. Coal, of course, contributes to greenhouse gases and contributes to global warming. So yes, Australia, on the one hand, has invested money in trying to protect and revitalize its Great Barrier Reef. But on the other hand, it is contributing to rising temperatures, which at the end of the day are helping kill off the coral. Ivan Watson, CNN, Hong Kong. Okay, so to come here on First Move, renter rewards. Meet the venture fund creating a reward points program for tenants and dating app Tinder on fire as post-vaccine singles swipe right on face-to-face romance. The CEO joins us later to discuss. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are taking a bit of a power-related pause ahead of key testimony from the Fed chair later today before Congress. Jerome Powell expected to point out the substantial economic progress being made as the U.S. reopens, but also the pressures still holding growth back. A lot of those strains visible in the airline industry today. Delta Airlines announcing that it aims to hire more than 1,000 pilots by next summer as travel demand bounces back. And yet American Airlines says labor shortages, wicked weather and the stress of ramping up schedules are forcing it to cancel hundreds of flights at the same time. Okay, now to a revolution in the rental market. Venture fund Kairos has partnered with top U.S. real estate brands and MasterCard to create a rewards program for renters. Tenants earn points for their monthly rent payments. Those points can be spent on things like travel, hotels and fitness classes or, and this is key, as a down payment on their future home. Joining us to discuss is Anchor Jane. He's founder and CEO of Kairos. Anchor, fantastic to have you on the show. Let's start by just explaining, good morning, how this all works. And I know you saw a problem with perennial rental payments, people never actually managing to get on the property ladder. And it crystallized when you moved from California to New York. Talk us through this. Yes. I mean, it's crazy how much money we spend on rent these days. I think the average American today spends $200,000 on rent through their lifetime and you get nothing back. You get no closer to home ownership. I mean, the system makes no sense. I can take a flight on American Airlines today and earn points. I can stay at a Hyatt hotel and earn points. But if I pay my rent on time, I get nothing, right? And worse, 80% of Americans are still paying rent by check in 2021, right? Just think about that. It's the only reason most young people probably still have a checkbook in their drawer, right? And so what we wanted to do was take the single largest expense, for most Americans, and finally turn that into the key to your travel, to building your credit history, and eventually your path to home ownership. And that's something we're just really, really excited about. And so we've launched the first ever loyalty program like Delta Sky Miles or American Day Advantage for rent, and the first ever credit card with MasterCard that has no fees on rent. So for the first time, everybody in this country can pay rent with their credit card 
for no fees and earn points on their biggest expense. I mean, that was one of the things when I read this that blew me away was the fact that you managed to bring all these airline groups on board, all working together to accept these points, but also some of the, the nation's biggest landlords that traditionally would be in competition, and they're all on board with this too. What about for a private landlord? What happens if I want to get this credit card, I want to pay my rent, but my private landlord says, hey, I'm not going to accept a credit card payment. How is that going to work? So what's exciting is you can pay rent with this card for no fees at any apartment in the country, right? And so if you rent outside the 2 million apartments in the built network or your landlord just doesn't take credit cards still for some reason, we built a technology with MasterCard so that you can still pay rent through our app for no fees and we'll send a check to your landlord on your behalf. So you still earn points, you still get to pay electronically, and you now also get the credit score benefit and the path to home ownership no matter where you rent. And that is something I think that will hopefully finally kill checks for rent. <laughs> oh, please. I couldn't believe it when I moved to, uh, to the United States and I was like, what? I have to use a checkbook again. Um, Okay, so talk to me about home ownership, because this is a crucial part. There will be people listening to this going, hang on a second. Uh, are we talking about paying a mortgage with a, with a credit card? Are we just talking about building some kind of credit history because you're showing that you're consistently paying your rent? How does it actually work to acquire points and then put that towards perhaps a future house purchase? So, it's, so when you rent with Built, you earn points on every rent payment. And when you use the built MasterCard, you can earn up to two times points on rent payments, right? When you're ready to buy a home, we worked with the US government for the first ever regulatory approval to use rewards points towards the down payment of an FHA or Fannie Mae mortgage. So not only will you qualify for better rates if you've been able to boost your credit score through things like on-time rent payment reporting, which by the way, could save the average American $30,000, $40,000 in interest fees over the course of a mortgage just by having that added credit score, right? You also now can use those points as a cash replacement for the down payment. So you might be able to cover 25, 30, maybe even 50% of your down payment just using points that you've earned for rent for free. How are you gonna make money on this? Anchor. So look, there's a lot of exciting opportunities. I think one of the jokes uh, in the loyalty space is that airline and hotels are actually loyalty programs that just happen to own airlines, right? I mean, the loyalty business is a massive opportunity. Them. <laughs> and, and if you look, if you think about it, when COVID hit, these big airlines took out loans against the loyalty programs because those points are so valuable. And that same concept applies here but housing is even bigger and touches a younger audience. And so we make money through the issuance of points to residents. We make money through when you use your credit card to spend outside of rent. So every time you swipe your card at the grocery store to buy a new airline ticket, uh, those fees that are spent by the merchant come through obviously as revenue. And then we also have a mortgage business, right? And we have an opportunity to help young people go from their first rent payment all the way to their first home purchase. Um, and that kind of life cycle engagement, I think is really exciting. And for customers to start getting that kind of value back on something you have to do every month anyways, and be able to turn that big expense into something meaningful, I think can be transformative for our generation. Yeah, I mean, it would be incredible, I think, to 
open up the opportunity, at least, for home ownership at some point in the future and um, to be rewarded for making uh, correct payments and making the payments on time. This is key, though, too, and I think we have to um, establish that you have to have money in your bank account. You actually have to have the rent payment. You're not paying your rent with credit here. That's sort of separate from the credit component of the credit card. Is that correct? So that is that is correct. So one of the yeah. things we developed with MasterCard is how do you give people the benefit of earning points, paying electronically, and getting credit reporting to the bureaus without the risk of people going into debt on rent? Right. And so we built a feature called Built Protect. And when you go to make your rent payment, it actually checks the balance in your linked bank account to make sure you have the funds available to pay it off and then helps you pay it off right away. And that way you still get to earn those points, you still get to pay digitally, uh, but you're not letting people go into the risk of debt uh, on their biggest expense. Critically important. Okay, so there'll be a lot of people that don't live in the United States watching this. You're just launching in the United States now. What about global ambitions quickly? I'm hopeful we can get this to renters all over the world, but we got to start here in our backyard and we have 2 million apartments that are going to be rolling this out across the country. But of course, anybody can sign up for the built MasterCard uh, and pay rent at any apartment uh, outside of our loyalty network as well. And we shall see how it goes. Anka, great to have you on. Anka, great to have you on. Anka Jane, founder and CEO of Kairos. Great to chat to you. Okay, we're back after this with the market open. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running this Tuesday and far from a summer scorcher on Wall Street. The major averages. Actually, look at that as we. Uh, oh, no, there we are. That was the, yesterday's performance you saw. So that is the performance. And we are relatively unchanged. The major averages ahead of a key testimony from Fed Chair Jay Powell, which takes place late in today's session. All this after a strong start to the trading week yesterday. Strength in financial and energy stocks helping the Dow rally almost 2%. Its best session in fact, in three months, that was the performance you were seeing there briefly at the start of the session. The game still on at GameStop 2. Shares of the original meme stock rallying in early trade after successfully completing a 5 million share offering, meaning an easing of some of the selling pressure or the perceptions of selling pressure up by more than 7%. GameStop raising more than $1 billion in its stock sale. And another check of Bitcoin, too, still trading below that key 30,000 level as we speak. Billions of dollars in value has been wiped off the Bitcoin books amid ongoing concern about China's crypto crackdown. Shares of MicroStrategy and Marathon Digital Holdings, which are heavily invested in Bitcoin, also losing ground in the session once again. Crypto exchange Coinbase also under pressure, too. Now, dating is rarely easy, but the pandemic has created a whole new set of challenges. Conversations about things like mask wearing, vaccines or even COVID anxiety have become the new normal. But as we collectively look down, swiping left or right on Tinder to indicate that you find someone attractive or not, never stopped. The most popular dating app says there were a record 3 billion swipes in March 2020. And from then on, the activity only grew with another 130 record days last year. Now, as we re-emerge into the real world, Tinder is introducing new features aimed at its growing population of Gen Z or Gen Z users. We're joined by the CEO of Tinder, Jim Lanzone. Jim, fantastic to have you on the show. Let's talk about some of these new features. Video is going to be part of the experience too. That's right. Good to be here, Julia. Um, yeah, so the first big thing that we're announcing today is the launch of video. 
you know, I think Tinder became so successful in part because it was so simple, you know, upload a photo in your bio, and then it was a very dynamic experience, start swiping. Um, but what we've seen is, is this new generation with Gen Z, it's a generation built on self-expression. And they want more ways to express themselves, not just to show more of themselves, but to dis discover more about others. And video, obviously, is a very natural next step to be able to do that. So starting today, people will be able to upload videos directly from their photo library. We'll have an editing tool right there. And then they'll just show up in your normal uh, photo gallery on Tinder. Uh, and as you swipe through, you'll start to see videos of other people. And we were just showing stats of how many people are actually using the platform right now all around the world. But for those that aren't savvy, you swipe left if you're not interested, you swipe right if you are interested. Ultimately, you produced a report which I found quite fascinating um, and it's titled The Future of Dating is Fluid. And it sort of takes key elements of what you've learned in the last year and what you think it says about what dating is going to be like over the next decade. And one of the insights that I found quite fascinating was that daters will be more honest and authentic. And I think this is one of the key challenges for people that use online dating is truth. And perhaps video facilitates that. Who am I actually meeting and seeing? Yeah. And really the whole Tinder experience is now going to be evolving to reflect that desire for more authenticity and really slowing things down. That isn't just something from Gen Z, but we saw from all generations using Tinder during COVID was this desire to get to know people virtually before deciding you know, that there was a spark of something more. And then they would actually take that in, into the real world. So instead of meeting and, and trying to get to some you know, outcome of whether there's that spark very quickly, they wanted to go hiking, they wanted to go to the farmer's market, they wanted to do things to really get to know people better. And we're leaning into that with some of our new experiences on the app as well. Yeah, I want to get back out to life, quite frankly. Um, what about some of the discussions, the barriers that have dropped as a result of tough discussions about what we feel comfortable with when we meet someone, whether we're going to wear a mask, whether we're going to be socially distant? Do you think that helps with some of the sort of more delicate discussions about what you're ready for in a relationship or what this relationship is going to evolve to? Do you think that's perhaps been made more easy by what we've been through in the last sort of 18 months? Yeah, and I think we saw that last summer as, as we all initially thought, you know, there was this false hope of coming out of it more quickly. And people did start to get out there a little bit more, but of course, in a very socially distanced and protected way. And, you know, people started to say things in their bio, like that they would only, uh, you know, meet people with a mask. And then eventually as vaccines happened, they'd only meet people who were vaccinated. Uh, you know, we actually then did a partnership with the White House, White House to, uh, you know, to help promote just education about vaccinations. And these are all topics that uh, that were very important to people. They also just became more vulnerable and talking about anxiety more. And these really led to having more conversations on Tinder. So we saw a 20% increase during COVID in the number of, of messages that were going back and forth. And then we saw a 30% increase in the length of those messages. So really they moved a portion of dating back online first. And, and online was already the number one way that people have been meeting people to start a relationship. It's surpassed every other method, but now it's gone even more to where that, that relationship starts virtually in many ways. And that trend, I think, will absolutely continue. Does it matter about the age group? I mean, I mentioned Gen Z. I mean, that's six to 24 year olds. What about for some of the older generations too? What are some of the patterns that you're seeing, whether that's, you know, vaccines, interactions, what they're looking for in terms of marriage or relationships or fun. Does it matter on the age group? Or are you seeing a sort of evolution in 
how people are going to behave when they come out of this period, as we come out of this period. Yeah. Look, I think COVID did this in many ways to many industries. I came out most recently out of the streaming uh, you know, video industry, and that accelerated the move to streaming. It accelerated yeah. the move to remote work. And the same thing absolutely happened here with a push more into to online dating. And another big thing that we're announcing today is a new Explore tab or, or hub on Tinder that gives people many different options for getting to know each other. So there are going to be a set of experiences built into Tinder so you can have things to do with somebody online to get to know them first to then decide. And we saw that that was a trend among Gen Z, which is 18 to 20, you know, four within Tinder. Uh, but we saw that then- Thank you for clarifying. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, it, we saw that it actually extend to all generations then. So for millennials and Gen X and older, all of whom also use Tinder, we saw everybody you know, start to slow things down, want more authenticity. Yeah. And really it's more about not so quickly swiping left and swiping right, but maybe swipe possibly or swipe maybe and getting to know someone first. And that really created a really rich zone for us to innovate. And then you're gonna see a lot more from Tinder down this pathway. What about safety? Because I think this is one of the other crucial issues that, that we should talk about, whether it's seeing people that you've previously dated or family members, I saw one one aspect of what people were finding on is with their professors from university steady on. What about blocking people and, and on the more serious side, safety? Yeah, safety is one of the three main product groups that we have at Tinder. It's something that we invest a huge amount in. Um, you're not going to want to meet somebody and be date uh, and date them or be vulnerable if, if you feel afraid. Uh, and so we've launched a series of tools. Uh, block contacts is one of them, which is avoids maybe that awkward situation. You, you know, you mentioned certain examples. What about if you live in a small town? There may be people you don't want to see. And so you can just upload to Tinder contacts uh, that you have and say that you don't want to see those people, you know, in your Twitter feed, I mean, your Tinder feed. Um, we also launched something like, are you sure? Which is actually going to use artificial intelligence to, to say, are you sure you want to post that message? That might be offensive to somebody. And then on the flip side of that, you know, did this bother you? So a button right there that if we sense that something somebody said could be offensive to you, you can report them right away. Um, we did a partnership with Garbo, which is a, a leading uh, a, a nonprofit in the area of assault and trying to work with them to figure out the ways that we can build Tinder more safely for the future. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a huge area for us and uh, equally important for innovation for, for Tinder. Yes. You are very busy. You and the team, clearly very busy. And uh, everyone wants to yeah. get back to life. Jim Lanzone, fantastic to have you on. The CEO of Twitter there. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Coming up on First Move, a spectacular show by the French fashion brand Dior. We've got the Dior chairman and CEO next. Welcome back to First Move and let the Fashion Olympics begin in a celebration of both high fashion and the Greek culture and history. The French luxury fashion label Dior held a stunning catwalk show at an ancient stadium in Athens. It's of course the place where the first modern Olympics were held back in 1896. And I had the opportunity to discuss the response with Dior's chairman and CEO, Pietro Bacari. Listen in. We thought it was perfectly appropriate to uh, celebrate this marriage uh, in Athens at the Panitonaikos Stadium. 
uh, which is uh, an astonishing beauty, uh, but there's also uh, meaning for us. And we did uh, celebrate uh, taking advantage of this, uh, the old Greek culture where, you know, our uh, European civilization had its origins. Um, so it was uh, quite a natural uh, way of thinking. Uh, and uh, we were added also by the fact that Mr. Dior in 1951 shot eight models at the Parthenon and these pictures uh, are still a part of our uh, archives and DNA and we wanted to have the chance to reproduce them 60, 70 years later which we did exactly yesterday morning. So all in all, uh, there were many reasons to go back to Greece uh, but uh, uh, there was a commonality of intent, a commonality of feelings between me and uh, Gracia and we were, uh, of course, uh, talking to people in the Greek government, uh, which were very keen uh, in having uh, Dior as a possible partner, uh, because they know that uh, we will speak highly, we speak uh, with respect, and we speak uh, with, a, with a mega powerful uh, uh, voice. You mentioned that image from 70 years ago. I have to say the 50s are one of my strongest fashion influences, and that iconic image of the dresses, the, the ladies in front of the Acropolis from, from 70 years ago. I mean, there's nothing better than that. What a great parallel. Yeah, oh, yeah it was Modern fantastic. And, uh, and it wasn't easy to get uh, the permission. Uh, I'm many sure. People tried before. <laughs> and we are particularly proud to be, uh, to, to have been able to shoot the pictures because, you know, as we speak, I saw the images as they were shot yesterday morning. They are absolutely yeah. incredible. Yeah, completely magical. You mentioned being in Greece and obviously just seeing anything, any runway show out in the open, seeing people being able to travel is a huge moment as well. Did you feel comfortable enough, safe enough to take a runway show, to bring all the models, to bring the spectators to Greece? And what precautions did you have in place just to make sure that everybody was safe? Uh, but listen, first of all, uh, we were respecting all protocols, you can imagine, and in doing right. so, we took some risk in March, uh, in February, when we decided to go and to go live and to go with public. Of course, we uh, we knew uh, that uh, that could have been changed last minute because the situation uh, is still unstable. But I say that uh, in Greece, uh, uh, they they and uh, you know for the voice of the prime minister himself, uh, they are quite they have been quite fast in uh, in uh, vaccinating people in this campaign of vaccination. Uh, because of the vacation, they want to have uh, Greece uh, full of tourists uh, this summer. And uh, all this, uh, uh, let's say, uh, determination of the government, of the Minister of Tourism, uh, helped us a lot in, uh, in feeling safe. What about the business of fashion, though? We also talked about Dior's uh, e-commerce strategy and what the post-pandemic future means for luxury brands like theirs. Mm. You know, we are investing a lot in real estate, uh, we are renovating our incredible uh, maison of Torti Montaigne, where, where Mr. Dior started his, uh, his company and he started his first collection, the famous New Look in 1947. So we are, we are investing because we believe uh, that uh, brick and mortar, the physical experience is fundamental for, for a brand like Dior. But we also believe that the customer will want to have the same experience uh, uh, in, a, in a circular way. So they want to be able to buy a product and to receive it the same day uh, via e-commerce if they want. So they want to have the choice and choice is what we are offering. So therefore we are digitalizing more and more of our, our, our luxury experience and we have 
uh, offering many, many services to clients. Uh, many of them enter through the e-commerce and then they end up their experience in the physical context. Many others go to the store, but as uh, products are lacking or they're missing a personalization, they will receive their product at home having ordered in the store. So this circularity and the ability to flawlessly move from one world to the other is, uh, for me, uh, fundamental for Dior in the future. And uh, uh, it's a service that they expect, it's a service, a perfect service, and I think that we are still way to go in order to make uh, the online experience even more serious. I, I don't know where we are going to make it and how we are going to make it, but we are looking uh, with intensity to how to make uh, uh, the online experience look more and more and more like a physical experience. Fashion of the future, the post-pandemic future, what is it going to represent as societies come back to life, try and find a new normal wherever they are in the world? How is that going to reflect in couture going forward? Well, I don't know. I, I just, you know, I really don't know. I think that people, as I repeatedly said, uh, I keep saying it even now, now it's easier than it was then when I started yeah. saying it, that people... Uh, will want to go and do things uh, even with more intensity and uh, with more pleasure than they were doing it before because we appreciate the absence of everything we love to do, you know, traveling, uh, uh, dining in restaurants, uh, uh, visiting hotels, uh, discovering places and uh, buying luxury. You know, I think it's, uh, it's something that we see already happening in China. And uh, I must say that uh, I was in Mykonos this weekend after the show and I saw, you know, hotels are full of people and we are doing an incredible business with the two stores that we have over there. So I, my forecast is for, for a very good summer um, if the situation stays uh, uh, better as it became better. What a backdrop. Okay, up next, from the online dating boom to Bumble's potential burnout, why the online dating app is taking a company-wide break. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. Dating app Bumble on a break. The company has given its entire staff this week off. Bumble says the holidays to thank workers for their, quote, hard work and resilience. But a subsequently deleted tweet referred to, quote, collective burnout at the firm. Claire Sebastian joins me now. I think we all know what collective burnout feels like, quite frankly, the whole world does after the past 18 months. But, but this is an interesting one. We only know what it takes to IPO and, of course, They've just done that too. So there has been a lot of hard work done there. And now they've got a week off. Yeah, more than 750 employees, the company's saying worldwide, are getting uh, a week off together, of course, bar a few uh, select people to keep the operation going throughout this week. This is what the company told me this morning, Julia. They said, as vaccination rates rise and restrictions ease, we wanted to give the teams a much-deserved week off to recover and refresh a bit, the implication being that as things start to reopen, uh, people people sort of need, need a bit of a reset. Uh, but, of course, that tweet that has been deleted referred to collective burnout. It talked about scarce vacation days uh, in the U.S. as well. 
And this is obviously something that's specific to Bumble. As you said, they went public in February. That takes a lot of work. They saw user growth up 30% in the first three months of the year. This is a fast growing company. But there are, there are elements of this that are not specific to Bumble that are going on throughout the economy. This is a time when employers really need to think about retention of employees. We can show you the, what they call the quits rate in the US. More than almost 4 million people quit their jobs in April this year. That was a record and a significant jump uh, on the previous few months. There's also a, a survey this month, Julia, from Microsoft that they surveyed 30,000 employees in 31 countries and found 41% are considering quitting their jobs. This is about people not just burning out. This is about people reevaluating what they want to do and, and looking at sort of work from home options in the wake of the pandemic. And it is really a time for employers to start to think about this. Yes, such a great point. Bic, benefits in kind. And we're going to see more and more and more of this. And actually, LinkedIn, I think, set a precedent, didn't they, earlier this year in April when they let their entire workforce, workforce um, take a week off. And they have thousands of employees. Yeah, 16,000 employees mm. got a week off at LinkedIn. They talked about burnout as well, Julia. And look, I, I've been reporting on this issue of burnout really since last summer when we saw uh, people start to feel this as the boundaries between work and, and sort of not, you know, play essentially got blurred due to work from home. But I think we're seeing a different type of burnout right now as the, the recovery roars back quicker than many had expected. Productivity is, is up. People are being very productive. Uh, but according to that Microsoft survey, that is masking an exhaust workforce. And that survey says leaders are out of touch with this. Now, of course, we are seeing tech companies, the likes of Google and Uber, uh, you know, openly embrace what they call a hybrid workforce. People can have the flexibility to work from home and stay in the office. But others are calling employees back. And I think em em employers really have to sort of look at what's going to be best for their employees and, and especially those quits numbers. Yes. No longer buttoned up about burnout. Find a better balance. Lots of these. Claire Sebastian. Thank you so much for that. All right. Now, speaking of taking a break, more than 70,000 people want a break from Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos. Stay with me. The richest man on Earth blasts into space next month and petitions calling for him to stay there are taking off too. The most popular is called, quote, do not allow Jeff Bezos to return to Earth end quote. It argues, quote, billionaires should not exist on Earth or in space, but should they decide the latter, they should stay there. Hmm. A lot of these guys give to charity too. Perhaps that should stay there too. <clears throat> and finally, usually when we talk about an elephant in the room, it's in the metaphorical sense. Not this time. Imagine waking up at night to a noise coming from your kitchen. First thought, is it a mouse? Is it an intruder? How about an elephant? Yes, this happened to a woman in Thailand who was met with this vision. She says the elephant first crashed into her house last month, creating the initial hole, and now it was back to get some food. Unsuccessfully, I might add. Oh, give the elephant some food. All right, that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. Search for at CNN. In the meantime, stay safe. Connect the world with Becky Anderson is next, and I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.